Will, you get to kick us off? Yes. Uh, welcome to the Four for Friday podcast. I'm Will Rob. He's Michael Girdley. Our guest today is Ian King. Michael, would you like to walk everybody through the format? Yeah. Great. Ian, we are so excited to have you today. Uh, we think you're going to be a terrific guest and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, format is the same as it always is. We do four questions. Uh, we get in and out in about 30 minutes, just like nature intended. Uh, and we talk about things around life, business, uh, and other stuff of interest. So uh, Ian, we would love uh, for you to share with our audience just a quick minute on you and your background and where you're coming from as our guest today. Yeah, well, thanks guys for having me. I really appreciate it as being one of your, I think, 75 listeners right now that is not Girdley's mom. I'm very excited to be here. It's an honor. And uh, let's see. Well, I guess I come from a finance background, started at uh, Salmon Brothers shortly after college, then uh, worked in trading for a number of years, wound up running a small hedge fund, took some time off after 2010 to start a nonprofit, traveled quite a bit and uh, did some private investing, which I don't find uh, that I'm as good at as public market investing. And for the last couple of years, I've just been writing a, about financial markets. So that's why I'm here now. But what I'm probably most well known for is being Michael Girdley's college roommate, oh, especially yeah. when I'm in San Antonio. Everyone <laughs> me on the street. Is you so. know, you know, Michael Gridley. It's funny. I get that when I go to Colorado, they're like, you know, Will Rob. <laughs> <laughs> when you come to Florida? <laughs> oh, wait, I got to Florida. Well, speaking of that, let's go ahead and get started with our first question. Uh, you know, I think since we now have our first Florida man guest on the podcast, I was wondering if either of you have a good Florida man story to share. Oh, I would love to share a Florida man story. So I've been living sure. in Florida now for two years. Before that, 20 years in New York City. And my favorite story was a couple of friends came down a few years ago, and we went on one of these gator boat tours. And to make a long story short, it was one of these kind of backcountry, you know, fan boats, and they bring you out in the middle of the gators. And we get, we get about a mile away from the dock, and we're sort of in the middle of nowhere with about eight to 10 alligators around. And I'm sitting in front of the fan and I look behind me and the thing is on fire, not just smoking, but I actually saw a flame. So I so said, why is it on fire? The engine just blew up in the middle of all the gators. So I said, <laughs> fire, fire. And the guy who's driving the boat, who was a classic Florida man, he gets down off his, his chair as they sit on a chair and they drive the airboats. And he reaches for this fire extinguisher that looks like it has not been used since like the late nineties. And I'm like, Oh my God, we're just, we're just going to blow up. The fire extinguisher happened to work. It took him about a minute to put out the flame. And then, you know, we're, everyone's kind of panicked because there's kids on the boat and there's, there's literally gators like 10, 15 feet from us. And so he calls, he radios in to get another boat. And as the other boats approaching, I hear him say to himself, Oh boy, I hope that's not Bill's boat. Sure enough, it was Bill's boat. We get on the next boat and this thing blows up like within two minutes. So now I've had the experience of two boats on fire in the middle of alligators. Finally, a third boat came and saved us. But as we get approached the dock, um, there's now like a huge wait because they're backlogged now because their boats are blowing up left and right. And there's like 40 <laughs> people waiting on the dock. And Florida man driver has the audacity to say to us, listen, 
everything that happened out there in the swamp stays in the swamp. I don't want any of you telling everybody <laughs> on the dock that's waiting about the boats blowing up. So I immediately stood up and I said, get you and your families out of here. The boats are blowing up. We've had two boats that have blown up. Get out of here. And, and that, that's my Florida man story. So be careful when you take these you know, gator boat tours that you know what you're getting yourself into. Don't buy them on Groupon, which was our first mistake. You bought a, you bought a gator boat tour on Groupon? Oh, man, I, my friends have never let me live that down. <laughs> well, that's uh, I don't think I'm going to outdo that one. Okay, Greg, so let's move on to our first stories more on the podcast. That was that was great. I don't I don't have a Florida man story really. I, I don't think we need to top that. Let's <laughs> move right into our second question. And let's go. What tech device has given you the most value? Go ahead, Ian. I mean, this is like kind of boring, but my I would say my whoop band has given me the most value over the last couple of years. And for those of you that don't know what a whoop band is. It's a simple device that you wear on your wrist. It doesn't have a screen and it basically takes your, your heart measurements a hundred times a second. So the data that it gets is much more robust than you get from an Apple watch. Now, the benefit of wearing the whoop band is it gives you, it, it learns your, your exercise routine, your sleep routine, and it gives you a recovery score every morning. So I know that if I'm on green, I can push it. If I'm on yellow, I have to take it easy. And then if I'm red, I take the day off and one of the benefits of having this device is that it has no screen. And I found that having less screens around me has been very beneficial because it just means there's less distraction. So if I was wearing an Apple watch or a Fitbit or a Garmin that had some type of screen, you know, I would be playing like Tetris or something like that on my Apple watch. If I got bored, at least in this case, it's, it's giving me the technology benefit without adding to the distraction other than the fact that, you know, I'm on the app for a couple hours a day, but that, that, that's a, that's another point. No. Um, so that's it. The whoop band. How about you, Mike? I, it's, I thought about this question a lot since we had talked about it before the, um, you know, the thing, the thing it is by far is the iPhone, right? It, the mobile phone is the tech device that it's expensive, right? You're spending a thousand dollars for a top of the line iPhone, but like the amount of utility is so great and it's become such an integral part of our life that we don't even think about how useful and how much it's dominated all the stuff we're doing, which, which caused me really to deflect on, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting thing where people, when things are so extremely obvious, like they just forget how much the value they're getting out of them or how terrible they are. Right. It's just, it's one of those things that just becomes so integral to life. And I, and I had a conversation with on Twitter with people about this, where they were, I was like, Hey, what's the, you know, what's the highest ROI investment like you can make in life. And they're all like, you know, a Volkswagen, blah, 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 this. And it's like, no, it's actually like who you pick as your spouse. But that ROI is like so high that people don't even really, they don't even think about as an ROI decision anymore. The magnitude is just so great that it, it screws up your brain. And I think the phone is in that category. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, they're so ubiquitous that we we take them for granted. It seems like everybody has them now. Um, yeah. I was going to choose uh, a good laptop computer yeah. with internet access uh, for many of the same reasons. You get access to lots of information. You can you can work uh, conveniently in your house or remotely in a coffee shop or at your work because it's portable uh, and you've got a lot of uh, functionality baked into it. Um, so I, I think it, it's got similar, 
advantages to the the smartphone. Yep. Would would you rather have a phone or electricity at your house? Electricity in my house. Yeah, but it's one of those things like we spend 50 bucks a month on electricity and nobody thinks about the ROI of it like so huge. So, anyway. Michael, you know, I'm interested like isn't there a downside to having the the mobile phone everywhere? I mean, I read a stat lately that says that the average American spends three and a half hours a day on the on their mobile phone. I and mean, this is something that didn't even exist 15 years ago. Right. And we spend like the majority of our waking hours on our mobile phone. Yeah. And it, you've obviously you've seen the social dilemma, right? Where the, the argument is against having this supercomputer that's built to basically distract you from everything in everyday life pointed at your monkey brain constantly. Like, isn't there also a downside to having a mobile phone? Yes. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> this is kind of what I like about your response, Ian. I, I like when we have moments where we can choose our level of involvement with uh, technology. And yeah. so you're you're presenting, there's no screen on this device that's my favorite device. And that's, that's a good attribute of it, I, I think is an interesting one. Yeah. Um, and kind of why I picked the, the laptop over the smartphone because I can, I can turn it off and leave it alone. Uh, I still, you know, spend plenty of time on it, plenty of time, you know, looking stuff up on the internet or distracting myself with fantasy football or whatever it is, but it's easier to turn off than the phone. Yeah. Will is arguing for free will. And I would also posit that I spent six months on the beach in Nicaragua and I didn't have mobile service like we think of it now. I mean, I can make calls, but it didn't have internet for mm -hmm. the most part. And sometimes we wouldn't have electricity for a couple of days. And I can tell you that like your quality of life actually can go up when you don't have these devices in your life if you can learn to live without them. But well, I don't know. how much do you think it is, you know, the, the inherent nature of these devices versus how you set them up and what kind of habits you build around them, right? You talked about getting distracted by the, you know, the, Candy Crush app on your watch. Well, is is the answer to not have the Candy Crush app watch on your or the app on your watch, or is it just inherently bad and has a downside? I think that you know it's hard for people, including myself, to have that type of discipline when you have these distractions around, and you know you're battling against these like algorithms that know the precise message to send you and at the precise time. And I, I mean, I just think there's going to be a lot of studies that look into the addiction and, and the treatments for people that have or spend too much time on their mobile phones and on social media. And I, I think it, it, in a sense, like it, it's almost kind of an epidemic in the United States that we really haven't touched on too much because, you know, you've seen how Facebook puts people in these little echo chambers, same thing with Twitter, mm -hmm. and you're just kind of surrounded by your own confirmation bias. And it doesn't really allow you to kind of um, expand or, or open your mind up to different points of view. And I, I think that that's just, and the, the movie, The Social Dilemma is great. I recommend everybody watch it because it, it really highlights this aspect of technology, the downside of having all this information accessible and having it highly curated to what they think you want to see. Yeah. And Michael said, is it something inherent in the device? I think it's something inherent in our, in our brains, something about how our brains are wired where it's hard to turn off that uh, easy stimulation easy distraction. Uh, and so it's one thing to say, well, it's good to have it available. I'm just going to be disciplined about when I have and how I use it. 
that's all well and good. But a lot of times strategies are just based upon, oh, I'm going to be stricter with myself. I'm going to be very disciplined, uh, you know, are not, are not workable strategies long-term. So. It, it is interesting. I don't know if you guys have read the stat that only a certain percentage of the population is actually highly susceptible to becoming addicts. Have you seen these stats? Do you think that's it's, true? It's genetic. Yeah, it's genetic. Like there's a certain number of people that if you take, you know, you take heroin, like out of this call, like only a certain percentage of us are highly likely to get addicted. The rest of us, it's a pretty low likelihood. You could do heroin once or twice and then move on. There's other people, they get their first hit and it's all over. So I wonder if that correlates also to, um, I'm not making that up by the way. I, you, I see the look I on know, both your faces. Know, you're like, Gurdley's full of it again. And I think the, there's probably a, a blurry line between highly likely to become an addict and not likely to become an addict. There's probably a whole range in there. Right. I'm a little skeptical of the, those ideas. I, I don't think I, it's I a, do a agree with that. I, I agree with that premise, Mike, that there is a genetic predisposition to, uh, I wonder like how it got pre-programmed into our brains though. Like what was the evolutionary trait that made us the addicted people more adaptive? Like were the addicted people always the ones that would go out and find the berries because they love the taste of berries or something like that? Yeah. You know, there's a reason for why some people are programmed like that. And it comes yeah. down to, to evolution. So, yeah, well, you look at uh, you look at like the proverbial honey like example. Right. So if you get addicted to sugar, which is honey and what do you have to do to go do that? You got to probably fight a bear and like get bit, you know, bit by uh, stung by a bunch of bees. Right. So there is probably something to that. Like, I, I like it. Now you can just get honey on like Whole Foods delivery, though. It's great. <laughs> Yeah. Right, let's move on. <laughs> this well, let's awesome. move on to a, a food question. Michael, do you want to yeah. do the question or you want I, me to ask I you? want to point out an awesome thing about this podcast so far, which is this is the first time we've had the guest telling us like, let's go guys. Come on. <laughs> we got to <we're> <laughs> finish like, this up. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to get in and out of here in 30 minutes like nature intended. Mike. <laughs> yeah. The other guests are like, sure, let's keep talking. This guest is like, please stop. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the food question. Okay. Uh, will our children in the future think about eating meat like we think about smoking? So will they talk My about children meat will. like smoking? My children will think about it that way. I'm not sure if that's going to be true for that whole generation of kids. Uh, but my children are basically both vegetarians at this point. They're young. They haven't really had many chances to eat meat, but they're, they're pretty reluctant to try it. Uh, and, and mom's a vegetarian. So I, I think we're going to keep trending that direction for those kids. Yeah. And Ian, what about you? You have a newborn. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I grew up in a, a family of parents who smoked and I've always been kind of repulsed by it because mm -hmm. of that. So, you know, I, I think about like the things that we do now that our children would be repulsed by. And I think just if you look at some of the, uh, you know, health impacts of eating too much meat um, and then compare it to the alternatives we have now. I'm talk specifically talking about Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and a lot of these other startups that are trying to reinvent uh, the, the way that we can, you know, organically produce meat. But I would say that that industry has a long way to go. Like, I feel like you can replace a McDonald's burger with a Beyond Meat burger and you wouldn't know the difference but you can't replace a filet mignon right now um, or other type of steak. So 
I, I think that we're probably a decade away from it. And I also think that the, the transition is gonna come just because of economics. I think it's gonna be increasingly more and more expensive to produce real you know, cow meat because there's gonna be so much demand from other countries, India and China, as they move up to the middle class. But I think the cost curve of producing some type of synthetic alternative will come down. And, and that's, that's why I think that people will look at it. And there's also the environmental argument as well. You know, like the methane that you get from, from cows is like more pollution than the airline industry puts out or some, some wacky stat like that. So, you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons for why we'll phase out meat. And lastly, I would posit this. I think the way that we look at animals as a society has really changed dramatically in the last 50 years. Like when I was a kid, our neighbors had a dog that, what? You're back. So when I was a kid, Okay. Okay. When I was a kid, our neighbors had a dog that they kept outside like in a kennel at night, you know? And then eventually like 10 years later, everybody had dogs in their house. Now, like our dogs sleep in bed with us. They're like our children. And I think the way we think about all animals is starting to evolve in the same way that we think about our pets as well. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that like 20, 30 years from now, I don't know how long it's going to take the idea of like eating meat will just seem like just so unhealthy and just, it's just bad for these sort of sentinel beings that have souls that we're like consuming. So. Uh, I will give you, I will give you the opposite future, which is, I think that a lot of people are discovering that, you know, low glycemic index eating centered around a lot of protein is very healthy for some people's metabolisms and some people's biochemistry. And like, I've experimented personally with all kinds of different stuff. I've done zone, paleo. I mean, like how many diet fads have you heard me talk through Ian? And it's just like the one that's actually worked and been the most easiest. And I felt the most mentally crisp and healthiest and had the best biomarkers around is very low carb, lots of protein, good chunks of fat. And, you know, the best place to get that when it comes down to it, you know, and I appreciate the idea of putting, putting artificially produced meat in people's bodies. There's still like a shit ton of chemicals and crap that goes in there. And I hear the argument that a protein molecule is a protein molecule, but what about all the other crap? And humans are built, I think, to eat meat in reasonable quantities. So like, I, I think there's actually going to be a backlash the other way where people are like, F this, grain f these chemicals like you shouldn't be putting that stuff in your body and you'll see a turn return to people eating a lot more meat and a lot more vegetables because it's just healthier for a lot of people yeah this is the fun part of the question and and i hijacked the question a little bit by making a joke about my own kids at the beginning here but i think the real question baked in here is is eating meat like smoking is just any consumption of meat bad for your health and I suspect that Michael and Ian have kind of different viewpoints on this. Yeah, absolutely not. Eating meat is perfectly healthy. So what are the arguments against smoking though? And I think one of the reasons why you've seen it phased out of society is in New York City, for instance, they stopped allowing people to smoke in bars and restaurants very early on. I think this happened sometime around right. 2000. And so it just became offensive if somebody lit up a cigarette in front of you. I mean, even walking down the street, if you smell somebody smoking in front of you, you're like, oh, God, I can't stand this. You know, you can't tolerate it anymore. I mean, are we going to get to the point where, like, when vegetarians start seeing, like, Mike devouring, like, uh, you know, a T-bone, they just, like, start sneering at him and just, you know, make him feel so awkward? 
is that is that where it's going? Is there going to be like so peer pressure? You're not evaluating the the framework of is it, is it a diet healthy thing to eat? You're you're just looking at the social stigma around eating meat in the future. Well, the question is, will we look? Do you look at your parents as being unhealthy for smoking cigarettes, or do you look at it as just the social stigma of, you know, the secondhand smoke is offensive to everyone else and is also a carcinogen and can cause somebody else's cancer? You know, like do we ever get around to that point with meat as well? Yeah, I think you could, you could definitely see that level of like wokeness coming to meat in general. Like I, I totally, I could totally see that going on. And like, like you're suddenly a Trump voter because you eat steak. Like I could see that happening. Yeah. Well, you, look, I mean, you have the health argument, right? And obviously you push back against that, but you also have the global warming argument. Right. It, it, and and, and, and what are, how many gallons of water does it cost to produce a cow? It's like insane. A lot. And then thirdly, you have like the animals are sentient being argument where like people have more compassion for other living things now. And, and so I, I think with those those three really stand out to me as to why, like, my daughter is going to sneer at me someday when I'm cooking up a filet mignon on the grill. But uh, livestock question. Livestock. <laughs> Hey, uh, sir, this is our show. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, you can't sir, make please. friends with salad. <laughs> can't make friends with so I just feels go... like This feels like the debate the other night, right? Where you're like, <laughs> I'm constantly interjecting and like trying to switch the topic. And <laughs> Poor... I'm just waiting for Will to yell, shut up, man. Poor Will. There's is a lot there. more laughing on this podcast. Ian, can you start the next debate off with a Florida man story for everybody? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Gladly, if hey, luckily if it's, it's going to bring more unity in this country, I gladly share as many Florida man stories as you want to hear. Uh, livestock right, is I, responsible for fifteen percent of global greenhouse gases, according to UC Davis. There you so, go, fifteen percent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and then there's I mean, the and there's an article is we're from have, Breitbart underneath that. So we'll, <laughs> to we'll dig have into more, this some more. We'll have more water when the ice caps melt, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. All right, uh, on to the last question, Will. Oh, it's my turn. You want to ask the last question? Yeah, I didn't ask any questions yet. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> You're not supposed to. You're the guest. Oh, I thought we rotate. <laughs> yeah, <Sorry>. between us. <laughs> we want to hear your opinion on every Welcome question. Welcome to Four so. for Friday with your permanent host, Ian King. <laughs> please, um, please go ahead, Ian. So the last question is, and this is going to Will first because Mike seems to want to talk out of turn. Are movie theaters dead? Will, what do you think about that? Uh, I think yes. And what I really mean by that is I think they're in a state of decay. Um, I don't want to get too carried away with just killing all things from the past into the future because of COVID. But I think uh, movie theaters were an industry that was struggling before. And uh, this situation is just going to change consumer behavior. And so it's going to take them from being in a, you know, possibly a state of decay or a plateau into like a long-term decay is what I think. I went and looked um, at box office receipts. I found a, a data site that had like 40 years of history. And starting around 2000, 2009, 2010, uh, box office receipts leveled off at, uh, at around 10 to $11 billion. And we have a long plateau from there. And then 2020 is a comical falling off a cliff, uh, like 2 billion. And that's probably all like January and February. 
Yep. So we'll see. The next couple of years will be rough. And then I wonder how long that change of behavior will last and, and how many theaters will just close permanently. I, I think you're, I, I don't think they're dead. I think for sure it's important to remember what business movie theaters are actually in, right? They're, they're in a they're in the business of being a place where on a Friday night, a bunch of 14 year olds can go and meet with their friends and hang out and watch a slasher film. And they're in the business of providing couples with some place to go that's safe and takes three hours and is appropriately what you want to do on a nice date night, right? Gives you gives you that break in the middle, then you have something to talk about. So, you know, that's important to remember what business they're actually in. I think what you're talking about, though, Will, and showing there are the characteristics of an industry that has gotten overbuilt and has entered a mature phase, right? We're starting to see a shakeout of, you know, of, of overextended performers, of, of, of um, companies that have taken on too much debt, right? And you're seeing people fighting over market share, but the pie isn't growing, which, you know, I don't think they're dead. It's just a matter of, you know, we have too much supply on the market at this point for movies. I'm gonna say no, I, I, but I think the ones that are gonna survive are the ones that are gonna be more experiential. So for instance, we've got one of these in town where you go and you've got recliner seats and they bring you dinner and you know, it's fancy and where you so only spend like $30 on a movie and popcorn. Now you spend a hundred. So they have to figure out a way to kind of extract more value from each customer. And one of the reasons why I don't think it's another reason is um, I think studios are going to be reluctant to just release their movies you know, on some streaming service all at once because it's much more valuable for them to get as many box office receipts as possible. And even if they shorten that time between when a movie comes out in theaters and then when it's released online, I, I still think that if there's, you know, a huge blockbuster movie like a new Avengers movie or a new Star Wars movie, people are going to want to have that feeling in a social setting. You know, it's kind of like saying, can you replace concerts by in-home streaming and there's just no comparison it's, it's not as much as a concert i'd say but i think that people still want to see you know uh, uh, the new star wars movie with a bunch of other people who are dressed up as ewoks so um <laughs> i'll leave it at that yeah well i think you're i think you and i tend to agree on this right that the mm -hmm. the core business of the movie theaters isn't necessarily showing movies uh, but there is a segment of the people that they're just in it for the movie. And that that's the segment that's getting totally eaten up by the streaming services. So I, I, I do think that the, like the production houses are going to be smart enough to see that and are going to segment it to where they realize that if you're in the just stay home and watch whatever's on the streaming service, they might as well sell you a premiere movie because you're not going to the theater anyway. So I think you'll see more of that. And it, it looks like the dam has burst on that based on what's happened with COVID, like a number of releases, they're going straight to streaming and charging you 30 bucks and you can watch it or not. Like, I, I think you're gonna see a lot of that simultaneously with movies coming out in theaters. I, I think uh, one thing to think about is in this group of people answering this question, we're, we're three middle-aged guys who are married with kids. So we don't have a lot of, date nights and we haven't had to adapt our behavior from, you know, 20 years ago when we were dating. Um, and I think younger generations just have a different, different response to this. I agree with Ian's point that the, uh, the value proposition, the experience that the movie theater offers has to change a lot. I've seen that too. And it, it's definitely, has been changing kind of continuously the last 15 years, but I also remember, you know, hearing conversations 
a long time ago, like, hey, this stuff is all going away because everybody's in-home theater system ha have gotten so good. We're just going to rent DVDs. Like the, even pre-streaming, there was this sense that movie theaters were going to be a declining industry. And I, I think this, this event is really going to push the whole thing in that direction. Um, and, and I say decaying more than, than dead. Uh, you know, I do think we'll have a, a return to movie theaters at some point. But it would not surprise me to see a long-term decline. And the, the thing with the streaming services where a lot of premier movies are funded by Amazon or Netflix or Disney with the intention of being released streaming first uh, has really changed the dynamics of that industry. And I, I think it's um, I think it's a thing. I don't think it's just a, a blip on the radar for them. Well, some of the streaming comes from the fact that we have coronavirus now, right? So you know, these new releases that you're seeing on Disney Plus would have been in theaters had there, if we were able to go to theaters for the most part. So I think maybe it's just a short-term thing. But in terms of like theater going, like even Mike said, you know, his 14-year-olds are still going to see slasher films on Friday nights, as he mentioned. So maybe maybe it's not as appealing to us, but... Um, I, I was actually exaggerating. Uh, okay. Getting, it turns out, remember how bad we were as teenagers now, 30 years ago? Mm -hmm. Yeah, their kids are not bad now because they don't leave the house. They're just all on the web the whole time. All well, they're constantly under surveillance when they go anywhere too, right? Uh, it is it is fascinating. I think my kids spend more time with their friends than I did at their age. Okay. Because they are on Discord with other kids all day long. And there'll be times where like, we'll be walk, we'll up for a walk or a family event and the, the elder kid who's 14 will just start talking. And we realize that he's talking to somebody through the one the, through the sign that you're a 14 year old, which is you have one AirPod in one ear and the other one open. And he'll just be talking to somebody on Discord because he's been on a Discord chat channel for the past six hours while going through this stuff. Yeah. What, like, what are, okay. We'll leave that for another topic, but I, I would like to find out, figure out what 14 year old kids are talking on Discord channels about for six hours at a time. It's, it's blather. It's totally okay. blather. Yeah. It's just, it's just like what happened at school, what happens with this manga character. I mean, just stuff that's just like blather. Yeah, they clearly should be talking in only 20 minute increments like nature intended. <laughs> Great segue out of here. And oh that, my God. That maybe, that maybe brings us to the conclusion of our podcast. Maybe maybe in a future podcast, we can talk more about uh, TikTok and Discord and some of the new uh, platforms. Oh yeah. Ian, Ian, you have been the best guest we've had this week. So we hope you'll come back again. I am honored, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, awesome. Thanks, Michael. Good job, everybody. Thanks. Bye, guys. Fun. Enjoy the exit music. Did I do an interpretive dance? Yep. No, that's his normal dancing.